Thank you very much, worship team, for leading us and for preparing our hearts uh, for what God has in store for us. And I trust that this um, morning, um, as we go um, through this sermon, that you will be inspired and that also you will be encouraged to uh, consider how you continue to live. Um, we're going through a series called Just Like Us. And what we want to do in this series is we want to look at uh, different uh, individuals in the Bible. Uh, we've looked at Joseph and Deborah, and this week we want to look at another person. And our goal in this series is to consider how these individuals in the Bible, how, uh, how they were people like you and I. And I think sometimes we can see the people in the Bible, uh, we can read them as almost like these supernatural individuals who, who, who we almost can't relate to because of what God did through them. But it's interesting that once you start to dig in a little bit, you, you begin to see very quickly, now there are people like you and me, and we could have just as easily been put into those places, and God could have used us in the same way. And I think that that is an encouragement, because then that reminds us, and that hopefully challenges us to recognize that if God could have done that in us in those days, in the times of Scripture, then there's nothing that would prevent God from using us in a supernatural way or in a very unique way in our time today. So the goal of this series is not just um, to learn something, but also to recognize um, how, and to consider, I should say, how we view ourselves. I think one of the things that you're going to find in all the people that we're going to cover is that very often what we are ultimately challenged with, if, if, if I would say this sort of a foundational goal of this, and that is that none of us would ever discredit ourselves as someone who God can't use. Um, we could have looked at, and I was very tempted this week, um, to look at a villain in the story rather than the good guy. Because I think in some ways, um, sometimes we can only see ourselves as individuals who, who God isn't using or who God wouldn't use or who God, for whatever reason, can't use. And we almost make ourselves that character, that person in the story that is kind of on the outskirts of what God is doing. And I hope that again today, and I hope that as we go through the series this summer, that you're going to be challenged to recognize that if, if that's how you feel, if that's what you're struggling with, that's not scripture, that's not biblical, that's not God, that's you. That you need to make a change in your life that says, no, if God, if you want to use me for something unique, if you want to use me in a special way, I am making myself available to be used by you. That's at the heart of this series. And so let's open in a word of prayer, and then let's dive into the person that we want to look at today. So God, I thank you so much for uh, all that you are doing in our midst. And I believe so clearly that even in the songs that we sang just now, that already healing has taken place, that people have already been comforted, that people have already been challenged. And I know, God, over the years as I've met with people, very often it's the lyrics of songs that people have left here with as what touched them that day. So I just pray now knowing that you've already been at work in our midst, and I thank you for that. And now as we look into this passage of Scripture, I pray, God, that you would now minister to each one of us through what you have laid on my heart to say, and that you would multiply it, and that you would increase it, and that you would put power and authority behind your word in each one of our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your app with you, you can follow along 
there. Um, if you have your Bible, I would love that even more. Turn to the book of Esther. We are going to look at Esther, and if you don't know where Esther is, because it's one of those books that's kind of sandwiched in there, it's right after Nehemiah and right before Job, and the only reason I know that is because I looked it up. Um, it's not like I'm like, oh, I have them all memorized. I don't, but if you're looking for it, um, it's about this far in my Bible, so you can kind of do the math in yours, or just cheat and let your Bible fall open to the very front, and you can quickly look it up there, find the page number, and done. You know, no one's judging here, but... Um, Notice all the people who are at the front of the Bible. Just take a moment and just recognize. But anyway, we're going to look at this person today. Um, and we're not going to talk about Esther. We're not going to talk about her. Um, because um, we want to look at someone else that's often overlooked when we read the book of Esther. Um, so we want to look at Mordecai. Uh, and I really want to take, and we're going to look at Mordecai, but we're going to constantly be comparing him with Haman. Um, and so these two, really, it's like, uh, they couldn't really exist. Their story wouldn't have much authority or their, their you know, e emphasis in our lives if they weren't both part of the story. You need Haman for what Mordecai's um, you know, going to do. And you need Mordecai for Haman to do what he did. And so we want to look at the story. We're going to focus on Mordecai, but it's always going to be done with Haman sort of as a backdrop, as, as someone that's, that we need to consider. My guess is that most of you have read this book. Uh, most of you have probably heard the story of Esther. It's an incredible woman who became a very unlikely queen, um, who lived and did some amazing things. So we're taking nothing away from what she did. Uh, she saved the lives of her people. Um, she was extremely courageous. She, she um, risked her own life. Um, and so, again, we're not taking anything from her story, but we want to look at um, someone that's you know, a key figure in this. Now, the book of Esther is unique in a couple ways. Um, first, it is, the, it is one of two books in the entire Bible that is named after a woman. And so that's, that's one thing, uh, which is interesting when we consider the important role of Mordecai, um, that the author decided not to name the book Mordecai, which some people um, have you know, kind of wondered about, but regardless. Um, and so that's one unique thing. The second thing is, considering that it's in the Bible especially that it's in the Hebrew scriptures, you may be surprised to know that the name of God is not mentioned once in this entire book. Never anywhere in this book do you hear the name of God mentioned. And there's a lot of discussion around that. There's also a lot of discussion around who wrote this. Some believe that Mordecai wrote it. Some believe that Ezra wrote it. Um, you know, we don't really know um, exactly who because it's not mentioned. And so why would... God's name might not have been mentioned at all. And how in the world, when they did the canonization of Scripture, how did a book that doesn't even mention God end up in our Scriptures? Um, and so obviously, you are, have to recognize that God is all, he's, he's all over this book. Um, that's very, very clear. Some believe that it's written because they wanted it to be able to last the time. If God had been named in this Bible, then, well, if you know your history at all, the people of Israel at this time are in exile. They're not where they want to be. And if the book had been all about God, then it may never have even survived. We don't know. There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of things. But it's an interesting fact that you have this entire book in the Bible that never once even mentions the name God. Now, Esther is a book, if you've read it, uh, is a book that is filled with suspense it has some real good juicy drama in it. 
And then the other thing that you actually will find if you read this book is there's an awful lot of comedy in this book. Um, it, it is filled with these beautiful moments of, of, uh, of you know, just comedy. And then ultimately it is, has just this very decisive uh, retribution. Um, it, it is just a book. Not, I don't want to call it revenge because that sounds really bad. But there's just this retribution. This, the, people get what they kind of deserve in this book. And so it's one of those, if you start at the beginning, you see where it's at. And you go very end. And there's this contrast between what started and what ends. And it's the complete opposite. Okay. And so again, I would encourage you to sit down and read through the entire book yourself. Now the book of Esther has many key names. Many key people. And so uh, to find the names, you have to, you know, read through the book yourself. And if you want to find out more information uh, about each of these people, you have to actually go to extra biblical research uh, to learn about who some of these people are. Because the Bible doesn't tell us an awful lot. It just says there is this person. And so you sometimes have to dig into some of these extra biblical resources to understand who these individuals are. For example, you have King Asherus. Uh, that's his per, um, Persian name. Uh, his Greek name is Xerxes. Um, different translations will use his either Persian name or his Greek name. Uh, if you're reading the NIV, then it's using the Greek name for his, I believe, the ESV or some of the other ones, they use his Persian name. Same people, okay? And so different translations use either his Persian name or some use his Greek name. Esther is another key person. Uh, it is, um, um, she's often referred to by her uh, Persian name, which is Esther, but her Hebrew name is Hadassah, and it's a beautiful name, and so you see it in the NIV, you see both used. Uh, another key person is King Vashti. Um, this woman really sets off the whole thing. Um, she refuses to be um, displayed like the king's ornament uh, in front of everybody and there's a lot of debate on what that all would have looked like but most believe that he wanted to parade her around with not much on um, to, short, uh, to show off her beauty and she refuses to do so and by refusing to do so she puts this whole story in motion. Um, the king wanted all the nobles and all the people to see her and she's like I'm not doing it and so then she's disposed as the queen. Now disposed I should clarify, it does not mean that she's killed, but she is removed from her role as queen. Uh, and this results in this edict being read, uh, written, which says that all women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Uh, it'd be interesting to know what exactly was meant with the word respect here, but obviously um, what they mean here is obey. And if you go to the Greek, I mean to the Hebrew, the word respect actually means sort of this authoritative approach here. And so that's, that's Queen Vashti. Then you have Haman. We already mentioned him a little bit. Uh, he is the villain or he's the antagonist in this story. Uh, he's the guy that we're going to learn to not like a lot. Um, he develops this incredible hatred um, towards the Jewish people. And that eventually leads to his own ruin in the most dramatic way. And we'll look at that in a little bit. And then finally, we have the person of Mordecai. Um, we are first introduced to him in Esther chapter 2, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, let's turn there and let's read. Um, because this is where we first hear about this person, Mordecai. This is now after the queen has been removed. Uh, as chapter 2 starts this way. 
Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed. Listen to this proposal, okay? Let a search be made for a beautiful woman, a young virgin, for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the Harlan at the citadel of Shusha. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beautiful treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Well, of course he liked it. <laughs> you know, sorry. Xerxes has a reputation, and this is again where you have to go back a little bit and look at some other research uh, on this person. Uh, there's a lot of research, um, actually, a lot of information on this man. He was an incredibly cruel individual, incredibly cruel. He was also a womanizer, um, and we won't say much more about that, but that was one of the things that he was also known for. Imagine history writing you down as a womanizer. Well, that's what he was. And the other thing that he's known for is that he emptied out all of the assets of his entire empire to build these lavish, or to have his lavish lifestyle and to build all of these incredible building projects. He was very much ruining um, his empire in this. And so now his advisors are like, hey, let's bring you these beautiful women. And once we have the best one picked out, um, you can, she can be queen. And the king's like, I like it. Verse 5. Now there was, and this is where we now switch over to, to Mordecai's side of the story. Now there was in the citadel of Susha a, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jared, the son of Shemei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither mother nor father. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So this is the cousin. Mordecai is the cousin of Esther. They are both Jews. They live in exile, meaning that they are in a very precarious place. They would have to constantly be careful. And Mordecai has adopted, in a sense, Esther as his own daughter, and so he is protecting her, the same as, he, as, his, as if she were his own, own child. Long story short, just so you know, Esther becomes queen. I think we all know this. And Mordecai... Um, works within the royal gates. And it's believed that he possibly already worked there beforehand, meaning that he worked, in a sense, for the king. And this gave him a very unique opportunity to be close to Esther and to keep an eye on how things were going. Verse, 29, uh, uh, verse 29, 19, sorry. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Now this is an important piece of information. Little bit of information here that plays a major role in the story. Esther is a Jew. 
okay? And we need to remember that. The other thing that's very important is that she continues to take advice in her instructions from Mordecai. This is obviously can be seen as at some point there's going to be a conflict here now between the king and Mordecai because Esther, it says right here, continues to take advice from Mordecai, which is extremely important because of who her, what her nationality is. In this we see that Mordecai was a man of principle. And as the story unfolds, you begin to see the courage that this man had. He had a strong faith and he was willing to take incredible risk and to do whatever he needed to do to protect his, his cousin and also his people. Mordecai finds out, and again I'm just filling in some of the blanks here, that there are two officers of the king who are planning to assassinate the king. And so what Mordecai does is he informs Esther, who informs the king, an investigation is done, and everything turns out to be exactly as Mordecai had said. The two men are impaled, uh, and Mordecai's act is recorded in the king's records. Now again, a little piece of information that is very important for the story as it unfolds. What you're going to see in the story of Esther, it is like one block after another that is placed ready for us to one day go, oh, now I see why that was mentioned. And this is, again, just one of those little pieces of information. Now we could discuss what was Mordecai's motive for saving the king's life. Uh, we don't have time really to dig into that, but this is definitely one of those things that you could look at and say, why would this man save the king's life? You know, if the king is dead, then the country would be in turmoil, and maybe that would have been beneficial for them as a people. I think possibly Mordecai would have recognized that if the king dies, Esther dies. Very likely they would have both uh, been executed, and so he, I don't think he's doing it so much just to protect the king, he is doing it also to protect his, his cousin, Esther. In chapter 3, we meet Haman, who immediately, if you're honest with yourself, this guy immediately rubs you the wrong way. He's just one of those people at work. And I'm not talking my jobs, because none of my people would be like this. But, um, you know, in your workplace, this is, this is that guy. And you all are thinking of that one individual at your workplace. He's all about getting recognition. It's all about praise. Um, the king you know, required all the royal officials to bow down at the gate and kneel whenever Haman comes around, and this is somehow to show him honor. This is what Haman has already worked out with the king. Mordecai, however, was not about to bow down to anyone. Uh, he worshipped God and God alone, and he would have seen bowing down to Haman as worshipping Haman, and he was not about to do that. This also suggests that he is one of the king's Royal officials, because the royal officials were commanded to bow down to Haman. And regardless, Haman stood, I mean, Mordecai stood out. And I mean, no pun intended here, but Haman literally stood out because he was the only one standing whenever Haman was around. And Haman despises Mordecai. He has a hatred for this man um, that I think few of us could understand. Look at um, Esther chapter 3, verse 3. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Ah, it's not just that he's disobeying Mordecai, I mean Haman, he's disobeying the king's command. Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. 
for he had told them that he was a Jew. And now we're beginning to unpack some of the important details. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him homage, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. See the plot thickening here? Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole realm of Xerxes. Now, let's stop here for a moment. I'm sure you guys are all bright enough. Everyone here, you're all super smart. What is Esther's nationality? What is her background? What is her people? The Jews. So here, poor Haman, without even knowing it, has walked himself or is walking himself straight into a trap. Because this is how you could interpret what he is about to do. Haman is actively looking to propose a way to kill the queen. He doesn't know it, but that's what's happening. And you have to think for a moment, Haman, how is this going to look when one day people find out Esther is the queen and you're the guy who came up with this? Now, Haman gets the king's approval to pass this, this law. And this was a law that could not be undone. It had to be fulfilled. And it gives him permission to kill all the Jews in the area. Haman is oblivious to who Esther is. Mordecai finds out about this, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and starts walking around the city wailing out loud, super loud. Esther finds out, and Mordecai informs her of what Haman is up to. He instructs her to go before the king and to plead for help. Esther informs him of how impossible this is. This can't be done because if she goes before the, queen, of the king without being summoned, even as the, as the queen, she could be executed. And then Mordecai makes this famous statement. Esther chapter 4, verse 13. He sent back this message. All of this is being done through messengers, okay? They're not talking face to face. Do not think, he says, that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. This is the confidence that Mordecai has. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I'm sure most of you here have heard that speech um, somewhere. Esther gambles her life. And this is why we do need to give her credit. She literally gambles her life. She spares, you know, every, or she, she puts everything at risk, and she goes before the king. And the king spares her life. And she tells the king, I have a thing I want you to invite you to. And she's extremely clever. She goes to the king, and she's like, I want to invite you and Haman to a banquet that I am going to personally put forward and Haman finds out about this that he is the only one invited besides the king his ego almost explodes there is a lot of comedy in this book like I said so here's an example of that chapter 5 verse 9 Haman went out that day okay he's just found out the king or whoever has told him of all the people in the kingdom you and the king are the only ones invited to Esther's banquet Haman went out that day happy and in high spirit. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's 
gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear of his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Can you just picture this guy kind of bouncing out of work and he's so happy and he looks over and he's like, this guy. What movie is it where the guy's like, I hate that guy, you know? Um, that's kind of the way I think Haman felt about Mordecai. Everything is going well, and then he sees Mordecai there, and he's just enraged with what's happening. Nevertheless, it says, Haman restrained himself and went home. And when he gets home, Haman does what every good narcissist does. He calls everyone together because he needs a place, he needs an audience with which to boast. He tells them how rich he is. How many sons he has. I'm sure they didn't know. But he tells them how many sons he has. And then how the king has honored him. And on top of all of that, he says, and that's not all. Haman added, I, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet he gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. He just can't let it go. So his wife gives him some advice. Wonderful, loving, caring wife that Haman had. She's like, put up a big pole, sharpen the end of it, and impale Mordecai on it. Woo! Let's have dinner, you know? Um, interesting, interesting. So Haman, he's like, great idea, honey. I'm going to go and ask the king tomorrow if I can impale, because Mordecai obviously is one of the king's royal people. He can't just do it without permission. But here's what's important. In the midst of all of this, Mordecai stays the course. He does not give in. And that same night, as the king is struggling to sleep, and, and Morde Haman is at home thinking about asking the king, and all this, this is all happening in that timeline, that night, the king can't sleep. And so what does he do? He calls in someone to read the records of the king. And one of the things that he discovers is that Mordecai has never been rewarded for saving the king's life. And this is again where this story just unfolds beautifully. So the king suddenly realizes that there hasn't been a reward for, for Mordecai. And then you get this next picture of Haman showing up at work early, probably dreaming through traffic, and, and as he's waiting for his coffee, of how he's going to ask the king what words he's going to use so that he can impale Mordecai and be done with this guy. And then the king is surprised to find out Haman's at work early. Well, why wouldn't you if you're going to ask for a question like that? So Haman's already at work early, and so he goes, calls Haman, and he says, Haman, what would you do for the person you would want to honor? And Haman, of course, being Haman, he can't think of anyone that the king would want to honor but him. So he spares no expense at what, should, what the king should do to honor whoever the king wanted to honor. And then comes the big twist. Judges chapter 6, verse 10. Go at once. And you can see Haman like, oh, I will. I will. I will spare no details. I will go at once because this is for me. And look what he says, go at once, get the robe and the horses, and just as you have suggested, and just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommend, recommended. This is pure gold. Can you imagine Haman trying to hold that smile? Just, <laughs> are you kidding me? 
Okay, look at the next verse, so 11. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. What a day, what a day. And as soon as he's done, he rushes home. He's got his face covered in grief. And he, call, of course, calls all of his friends together again because that's what he needs. Haman requires an audience for everything. And now they immediately make an observation. They immediately make this observation, Haman, Mordecai has started your downfall. They actually say that. Morde, his wife says, Mordecai has started your downfall. But here's the problem. Before Haman can come up with any plan, there's a knock on the door. Guess where you're going? Ah, this is now to go to Esther's banquet. So before he can change his mind, and I'm guessing here if he would have had one more day, he may have gone to the king and said, you know what, I'm changing my mind on all of this. Let's, let's make this thing not happen. But he has no control over that. Timing is not on Haman's side. So he goes to the banquet, and I'm sure his heart is still somewhat troubled at what had just happened, but at least he's now able to be one of the only people at this you know, banquet. And so he put on a bright smile, and Esther gives the following speech, chapter 7, verse 3. Then Esther um, answered, because the king asked what she would want. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. Okay? Haman's listening now. Because look at what comes next. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. Can you imagine Haman at that moment? My people? And I think at that moment he's going, oh boy, I should have done more research. He must have immediately put the two together. I have asked for the king to be queen, um, for the queen to be killed. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If, I, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. But no such distress, because no such distress is just, would be justified disturbing the king. The king cries out, who is he? Who is he? Point him out to me. And look at Esther's response. It's brilliant. An adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. The king is so enraged that he has to storm out. Because you imagine the confidence that he has put in this guy. And so Haman begins to beg Esther for his life, even though he already knows the king has made up his mind. And Haman ends up falling down, it says on the couch, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And the question that we could ask at this moment is can anything get worse, can this day get any worse for Haman? And the answer is yes. Because there's a person in the room who doesn't, one of the servants, who maybe doesn't like Haman all that much and says, oh, by the way, Haman had this massive pole put up on which he was going to impale Mordecai. And so they take Haman there and end of story for Haman. Chapter 10, verse 3. i got to move along here. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews. And held in high esteem for his, 
by his fellow uh, Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke for the welfare of all the Jews. Now, we have just covered an entire book, and I'm running out of time, so we're going to have to just pause now for a moment and ask ourselves a simple question. What can we learn from Mordecai? Because we have to see this story, and this is why I spent so much time on Haman, because if you just read the parts about Mordecai, there's a lot of cool things, but you need to understand what he was up against. So what are some things that we can learn from Mordecai, considering what we have just looked at? First one is this, and I, this is going to sound so simple, but I don't want you to overlook it. Number one, humility works. Humility works. There are those of us in the room today, I myself included, we often go after things that we think will make us look good. And often, without intending to, we become very prideful people. And this idea of humility, this, this idea of not always being the center of attention, not always being the one who gets the recognition, not always being the one who is, you know, receiving the praise or whatever it might be. I'm not talking here about running ourselves down or not accepting gratitude from people. But when you contrast Mordecai, who is willing to, to be obedient to God and follow God and live a humble life, and he wasn't trying to bring himself up before the people, even when he wasn't recognized in the records, he didn't go to Esther and say, hey, could you remind the king that I never got a reward for what I did? He just, in a humble way, continued to serve. And Haman the, was the extreme opposite. He was all about getting immediate recognition, about immediate praise, filled with pride. I want to just encourage you today, from the story of Mord uh, Esther, from the story of Mordecai, you can see humility works. And maybe you're at a workplace and you're like, i got to make a name for myself there. i gotta, I got to get noticed. Practice humility. The Bible has a lot to say about it. The second one is, live with others in mind, not just self. As you go through your day, as you go through your week, as you go through your life, I want to encourage you to constantly have a mindset that recognizes and, and sees that there are other people in your life. And that there are times where it is better to give for others and for the sake of others to help others than just always for yourself. Maybe you can show up a little bit late for work in order to let someone else have the place in front of you. There's a lot of different ways that you could live this out. But this is one of the things, again... Mordecai lived to help others. He wasn't just in it for himself. Haman lived only for himself. It was all about himself. And then lastly, serve Christ in all circumstances. If you look at the story of Mordecai, you can easily see that to serve Jesus is possible no matter what your circumstances are. No matter what your circumstances, you can serve Jesus. And you might be sitting here today and you're looking at an, a situation in your own life and we're not downplaying it for one second. And you might think, well, in this place, in this school, in this place, you know, wherever, in this, you know, this environment with this group of people, I cannot speak Jesus. I cannot present, represent Jesus. I cannot, you know, be a Christian. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Don't be preachy. Don't be pushy. Don't be, a, don't be the, you know, the, the worst person in the room. Use Humility. Use love, but you can live for Jesus and serve Jesus in whatever circumstance you are. You can see that in the story with Mordecai. When all the chips were against him, when everything looked impossible, he continued to serve his God, and God rewarded his faithfulness. Let's close in a word of prayer.
Father, we have pounded through this entire book and we only got to only part of it. And so I pray now as we leave here that we would not forget this story. That we would not forget the way we see two people, Esther and Mordecai, continue to serve you even when they were against as powerful people as Xerxes and Haman. Even when they were in a place that was not their own, in a land where they had no authority, they had no rights, they served you, Jesus. They served you, God. So I pray now for us that we would be humble, that we would live to help others, not just live for ourselves, and that we would live our lives with you, Jesus, as the center of all that we do, to serve you in every single way that we can. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.